So that's by way of the introduction to our talk tonight. Um, I want to talk tonight about um, one of the essential paradoxes of practice, of being on retreat, and that is the paradox that of effort, sometimes called right effort. If you look at the um, Buddhist teachings, you will find the quality of right effort or skillful effort or wise effort comes up over and over again. It's one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. It's one of the perfections. It seems quite clear that in this journey, we need to make effort. You all have made effort by coming here, by your continued attention by your showing up here, uh, sitting after sitting, making this effort. And yet at the same time, we hear in the text a lot about letting go, letting go as an essential movement of heart and mind in the practice. So that's tonight what I want to talk about, the balance between this this quality of effort and the, and the essential piece of letting go that is needed. What kind of effort have you made here today? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. And yet you may have bumped into times or moments when, when you saw that your effort was frustrating you, where it, you felt like you were banging your head against the wall. And that will happen too. There is a Sufi saying, what we speak of cannot be found through effort, yet only those who make effort find it. What we speak of cannot be found through effort, yet only those who make effort find it. So there's a paradox. It is a journey requiring both effort and a very deep surrender. Years ago, I was um, interested in Buddhism and interested in meditation practice, and so I wandered in and out of a number of different centers, and this was back in the 70s. I wandered into the um, Zen Center of Los Angeles and did one of my first ever Buddhist retreats there. And I was very taken with the form of Zen, the formality, the chanting. It seemed very uplifting in a certain kind of way. I was very moved by the teachers there. And yet, they don't give too many instructions in Zen. You just kind of sit down and there you are. So the only instruction I remember ever receiving at the Zen Center was one they would shout At the beginning of each sitting, they would shout. Somebody would shout. I never saw who it was. You just heard this big voice coming into the hall that shouted, Die on the pillow! Die on the pillow! And I would think, yes, yes, this is really important. I've got to do it now, you know. It was like very urgent. And yet I hadn't a clue None. What that was, you know, I mean, how I knew nothing, nothing about how 
okay, I'm willing, I'm here, but how? <laughs> so I just found myself getting tighter and tighter and more contracted and more contracted, and um, it never happened. I didn't die on the pillow. <laughs> I left that pillow to seek, to seek for other pillows. Um, and then another moment in my practice came many years later, say 15, 16, 17 years later, when I had done a lot more practice in between, particularly in this style of practice. Um, and I was sitting with a Tibetan teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, and was completely shocked when he said, okay, everybody stop meditating. Do not do anything to change your experience. That was another instruction that just came out of the blue and I couldn't quite make sense of it because Again, I had thought that meditation was doing something, trying to change my experience, trying to alter my consciousness, trying to um, be more focused, be more, you know, this quality of doing had become very strong. So these two instructions of die on the pillow and stop meditating, you know, this is sort of representative of the range of instructions you may find in your own um, explorations in this world of meditation. That at times it seems like, yes, we need to, to do a lot. We need to die on the pillow and other times give up all effort, surrender, let go. Suzuki Roshi uh, once said, everything is perfect and there is a lot of room for improvement. And somehow both are true. On the absolute level of reality, everything is already perfect. And yet on the relative reality of our everyday experience, it appears that there's a lot of room for improvement. We see it in ourselves, we see it in the world. So effort is worth considering in your own practice. What kind of effort is useful? Tonight I want to talk about how there actually, what I have discovered over many years is that different kinds of effort are, are useful at different stages of our practice. So I want to speak about that tonight. Now, in our lives in the world, we make a lot of effort, do we not? You get up every morning and you start making effort in the service of what? What are we serving with our effort? This is a really great question to ask ourselves. What is all of our effort in the service of? Now, in our culture, we, we tend to accept, you know, we're, we're conditioned to, to value you know, making money and being successful and having a family and, you know, the full catastrophe. We're, we're just very conditioned into a certain way of life that requires a lot of upkeep, a lot of um, material um, uh, achievement and success. 
Now, I, there's nothing to say that we need to criticize that, but we need to look at it. We need to explore it. We need to see what is that representative of what this life is about for me? Is that what I want to give my effort to? The Buddha spoke about three qualities of consciousness that are ways we get entangled in difficulty, in suffering. The quality of greed in the mind, wanting more, always wanting more, more, more. Never enough is never enough. We certainly see that in our world. The quality of aversion, the quality of aggression, of the feeling of, of not liking something and knowing that we need to get rid of things, always trying to get rid of something in our world in order to feel at peace, in order to feel happy. And the third quality of consciousness he spoke about that leads to suffering is the quality of delusion, of simply being in denial about the facts of our existence, that we're not in touch with what is real and what is true, but we are living out some fantasy world. So we see these at play in our world. We see them at play in ourselves. When we come to practice, we are opening ourselves to perhaps another view. And that is the view of effort in the service of awakening in ourselves wholesome qualities of consciousness, qualities of loving kindness, compassion, patience, forgiveness, joy, equanimity, that we are actually opening ourselves to strengthening qualities of consciousness that are rare in this world, not that they don't exist, but we don't bump into them so frequently perhaps in our world, or maybe we do. Maybe we have really wonderful friends and families who exhibit these qualities. So we are making effort in the service of awakening and strengthening the wholesome qualities and diminishing or eliminating the negative or unwholesome qualities or tendencies of mind, the tendencies of greed, aversion, jealousy, avarice, violence, abuse, lessening the impact and the, the tendency of our minds to move in that direction. Trungpa Rinpoche described this process, because it is a process, as the process of transforming the material of mind from expressions of ego's ambition into expressions of basic sanity and goodness. So that's a description of the possibilities of this journey. And so the Buddhist tradition offers an array of different practices, what we could call skillful means for arousing and maturing these wholesome qualities of consciousness and diminishing or eliminating the negative tendencies of mind. So here on retreat, we bring mindful awareness to all aspects of our experience to understand how we are suffering and how we might undo or release our suffering. The Buddha said over and over again, I teach one thing and one thing only, 
suffering and the end of suffering. He said, I'm not so interested in teachings on what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. No, what's more to the point and what actually helps us in our lives is to see how it is that we suffer, how we get lost and tangled in resistance and struggle, and how that suffering might come to an end. That is the direction of our practice. So how to best apply our effort to this task? How can we use effort to support the wholesome and diminish the unwholesome? This is actually a very big question. I would say it's a lifelong question. You may have glimmers as you sit here, but you will continue to have glimmers as you live out your lives. This is not not something that, you know, you just get on one retreat and that's it. It's a lifelong question of looking at into our minds and finding how it is that we liberate ourselves, basically. So looking back over my now some 25 years of practice, I can think of times in my practice when I made a huge effort, way beyond anything I could have imagined, and reap the rewards of that. And other times in my practice, when all effort seemed utterly futile. And then there were other times when I felt carried by a kind of effortless effort when I felt carried by a momentum of samadhi and mindfulness, perhaps the analogy in sports would be like being in the zone, when there's just an an easy, natural momentum of mindfulness that just carries you through the day, when no apparent effort was being made and yet there was tremendous energy and interest in practice. I remember in such times feeling like there weren't enough hours in the day to sit and walk. It was so yummy to me. Now, I'm not saying you should have that experience here. You may be feeling just the opposite. You know, first day of a very hot retreat, this is not something you're going to feel. But I want to offer it as a possibility, a carrot, if you will. So tonight I want to talk about three different kinds of effort that arise at different times in our practice. They're not necessarily um, sequential, but they may be. The first kind of effort I call inspired effort. It comes out of some kind of inspiration. We hear something, or we read something, or we meet a being, a teacher, who inspires us, who gives us a sense of a new potential, a new vision of possibility in our lives. I had this experience many years ago, before, even before I went to the Zen Center. I met a Tibetan Lama in Berkeley who... Um, 
didn't speak, he did not speak very good English, but he exuded this amazing, loving energy. Anyway, uh, I ended up going to a teaching of his one day, and I didn't much understand, I didn't understand practically anything he said. But at one point in the day, something happened which I would really point to and say that was the beginning of my Dharma practice. It completely changed my sense of possibility for this life. And that was a moment when somebody asked him a question about compassion. And he turned to this person to answer and something in that moment entered the room this is my perception, something entered the room, entered my heart, and I thought, oh my gosh, compassion is a living force. It's not just a nice little word that you use in church, you know, to make people behave. I'd sort of gotten that idea from my Protestant upbringing. But I saw it as this living quality that became very alive. And in that, I got completely inspired, completely inspired to find out more about the Buddhist teachings and more about uh, what, what it was all about. Another moment I remember was when I traveled in Asia and Nepal for the first time in 1977. And arrived in Nepal on the night of the full moon, and went, we were taken out to the stupa, Bodhanath stupa. And because it was a full moon night, they had a special full moon puja going on, a ceremony, and they had candles, little candles lit all around the stupa. Stupas are round, and it's, they're places of pilgrimage. There were people who, who, who go, who have a lot of devotion to the, to the Buddhist path and, and want to express that devotion. And so that night, they were, the whole stupa was lit with these tiny little candles. And then there were these people who had just arrived from Ladakh. Now, from Ladakh to Nepal is some, quite a long journey. I don't know how many hundreds of miles. But these people were pilgrims, and they had walked from Ladakh to come to Bodhanath on pilgrimage. And not only had they walked, but they had been doing full prostrations all, all along the way. So they were, these people from Ladakh were, were walking around the stupa, doing their prostrations and saying their prayers. And I felt like I had landed on another planet. I had never seen anything that was so full of this devotion and this sweetness of this quality of this, you know, effort. Talk about effort. <laughs> it kind of blew my mind. So we may have moments like this where we feel in, inspired by something. It doesn't need to be in the Buddhist tradition. It may be you're inspired by a uh, uh, a national figure, you know, or a Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, or, um, you know, I felt inspired the other night. I don't know whether you all heard Hillary talk about Harriet Tubman 
And the, 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 the story she told, I don't know so well the story of Harriet Tubman, but when she was helping the slaves to, um, on the, uh, the Underground Railroad, thank you. She, you know, her instructions were, when you hear the dogs, keep on going. When you see the lights in the distance, keep on going. Her instruction was always about keep on going. Don't give up the effort. Keep on going. I found that very inspiring. That's like a teaching for life. When we get discouraged, keep on going. So we may find all, all kinds of things which inspire our sense of possibility for ourselves. It's not just about being inspired for you know, some cause, it's about inspiring your own sense of possibility. And this, this kind of inspiration is ongoing for me, I would say. I mean, the contact with the Dharma itself, to me, has become a very inspiring part of my life. And I'm, I'm immersed in it. I feel very fortunate to be able to teach and, and work with people. And you all inspire our effort. When we, when we meet with you in groups, we get totally inspired by seeing your effort, your sincerity, what your questions are, what you're bringing to this um, journey. It's, it's a wonderful thing, and that we all share in this quality of uh, inspiring each other. So, um, inspired effort. Sometimes our effort isn't so much inspired as it is desperate. We may have a, a time in our life which is very, very dark or very difficult. And in the middle of that, some little thing may come as a little glimmer of light. I wanted to share with you a story. I'm going to have to tell it from my memory because I couldn't find the written account of it. But it's a story told by... Um, a nun who was with Thich Nhat Hanh in Vietnam during the, the Vietnamese War. And she and Thich Nhat Hanh worked in the villages, helping villagers rebuild after bombing. So she tells a story about how they uh, were working in the village. And this vi one village had been bombed one time, they rebuilt. Second time, they rebuilt. Third time. Imagine that. So she said, after the third bombing, people were starting to get really frustrated and really angry and really, you know, at the end of their rope. And she realized that she needed to really gather her mind together. So she meditated. And she tried to bring a, a quality of, of presence and calmness to herself because she felt without that, that she would lose it. We've all felt that at times. I'm going to lose it. I'm just going to lose it here. So we need to, at that moment, ah, breath. I can breathe. I can bring some calmness into the situation, right? So as she was doing that, she happened to look down into this destruction the rubble, and she saw these tiny little flowers peeking up through the rubble. I don't know what kind of flowers they were, little daisies or something, just something very ordinary, these little flowers. And she got completely inspired by these flowers, and she thought to herself, 
if these little flowers are still blooming in the midst of all this destruction, what am I moaning about? These little flowers, I will use them as my inspiration. They are life. They are showing me the way in the middle of this to reinvigorate my effort to help these people and to bring sanity back into the situation. So one little flower may be all we need to re-inspire us in the midst of life's difficulties. Of course, when we make effort, we make effort in the service of something we usually hope will have some good results. You know, we don't make effort for no results. We want a certain outcome. We want in our lives a sense of um, some sense of being able to control the outcome of our health, our well-being, our relationships, our work. And sometimes that works, and it works really well, and we feel, hmm, really on top of things, you know, life is good. Other times, things don't work out. So we need to look at that and not get discouraged in that regard. As we age, I am discovering, as others in my age bracket are discovering, that our lack of control over things becomes more apparent, particularly issues around health and issues around things which have previously seemed quite reliable, like our memory. I hear some laughter, so I realize you're recognizing this phenomena of, oh God, what was that, that name? Oh, jeez. Senior moments. So here's a poem by Billy Collins called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. As if one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. <laughs> Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, a state flower perhaps the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall, <laughs> well on your own way to obliv oblivion where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. In not being able to control 
and however that shows up in our lives, we often feel we have failed. And so that is something we will confront in our journey. Rumi knew about this, and he wrote a poem to help us about it. It's a poem about the importance of failing. He said, God fixes a passionate desire in you and then disappoints you. God does that a hundred times. But sometimes your plans work out. You feel fulfilled, in control. That's because if you were always failing, you might give up. But remember, it is by failures that lovers stay aware of how they're loved. Failure is the key to the kingdom within. Zen Master Dogen said, My life has been one continuous mistake. So don't imagine that this journey is just, you know, one continuous achievement after the other. The second kind of effort, after our effort has been inspired, is the actual application of effort. What you have been doing here all day, applying yourself to the task at hand. The task at hand is what? To keep looking within. To keep turning your attention away from this external events and everything going on out here, to keep turning your attention back into yourself, back into the present. You listen to the instructions. You listen to me talking and Dharma talks. You sit, you walk, you do your work, and you keep your focus returning over and over again to look within, to see what is arising in my heart, my mind, my body right now. What is going on? You learn to keep going with this. You don't do it once, twice. You do it in as continuous a fashion as you can throughout the day. And that is sort of the... uh, one of the beauties of mindfulness practice is it's not just about sitting meditation. It's not just about walking meditation. It's throughout the day we can take this quality of applied effort and keep looking within to see what is our response, what is our mind doing in any particular moment. As mindfulness has been um, broadcast more widely into the culture, as there's been more interest in in uh, people in education learning more about it, people in health uh, learning more about it. There's a lot of interest in mindfulness. There's a lot of research on mindfulness going on in the culture, and that's, in a way, a kind of wonderful thing. And there's also, at times, a little bit of a uh, uh, distortion of what it actually offers. Sometimes people quote Thich Nhat Hanh, present moment, wonderful moment, as if, in our kind of way that we advertise things, you know, as if if you just learn to be present, all your problems will be gone. 
Now, maybe even you came on this retreat with that misconception that I've got to learn to be present because then all my problems will go away. Not quite. It's certainly true that the present is a significant reference point for our practice, but it also shows us what's difficult. It shows us where we're caught. It shows us where we're suffering. It's not a, a, a guarantee that you're going to abide now in bliss by being present. So, again, we're faced with one of the paradoxes of practice. I said the Buddha talked about suffering and the end of suffering. So we may get the idea, well, I see the suffering. Okay, where's the end? I'm ready for that part. You know, let's have a little of that. Now that will come. That does come. It comes in moments. It comes in big moments. But it may not be so apparent on the first day of a retreat. Again, Suzuki Roshi offers us something to contemplate. He said, the difficult, this was actually, I should tell you the story. He was teaching a a retreat, and it was sort of in the middle of the retreat, and he said to his students, the difficulties you are having now, and then he paused. And everybody's like, yes, what? <laughs> you know, I, we'll soon be gone. But he's probably going to say that. You know, the end of suffering is in sight. The difficulties you are having now will be with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> so this is something interesting. What could he mean by this? I didn't come here to hear that. I came here to find about how to get rid of all this troublesome stuff. We don't want to believe this, but just for a moment imagine that it might be true. What if the difficulties you are having now will be with you for the rest of your life? What then? Well, this is one of those those amazing moments where we see another possibility. We see that the possibility is to come into a new relationship with those difficulties. It may not be about getting rid of them. You may have a pain that's not going to go away. You may have an emotional thing that just keeps coming over and over again. So the question then becomes, the place of practice then becomes, can I come into a new relationship with this that is so difficult to bear? And that is an alchemical shift in our way of being. We learn in that shift that we can be curious about what arises instead of judging it or condemning ourselves. We learn in that shift that we can be patient instead of agitated. Or we can be compassionate with ourselves instead of condemning ourselves. We can be spacious and allowing instead of demanding and controlling. This can only happen in the present. It is a teaching about how we meet that which is difficult. 
It is a teaching about how we meet the difficult in ourselves, how we meet the difficult in others. A poem by Gess Pestegertler called The Healing Time. Finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones. And I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. So this is a teaching about transforming that which is most difficult into the actual path of practice itself. These become our teachers. These become those moments where we can transform our relationship to our lives. And in this process, we discover what kind of effort is needed to meet ourselves. What kind of effort is needed to meet ourselves. Years ago, I another Zen, another Zen story to share with you briefly was another Zen experience. my first Zen experience, Rinzai Zen. Anybody here practice Rinzai Zen? It is um, the most martial kind of uh, Zen. I called this experience going to Zen boot camp, actually, because it was so uh, much more than I could actually... I, I still couldn't imagine, in, even now, you know, being able to do the practice. It was so rigorous. We began at three in the morning, waking up, and you had no choice about whether to go to the sitting or not. You had to go. You had to be with the group every moment of the day, except for a half an hour after lunch, where you had a little chance to either take a bath or lie down or something. And um, so, three in the morning, we we cheerfully got up and ran to the chanting room where we chanted in Japanese to the beat of a drum for a half an hour. And that really wakes you up, you know, 3.30 in the morning, <laughs> chanting a little to a drum really gets the you know, blood moving. And then we were to run to our first interview of the day with the Roshi, who was a very fierce Zen master. He is still alive at the age of 105 or whatever. He's quite a vigorous guy. Although when I sat with him, he kept saying he, he was going to die any moment because we were all such bad students. He couldn't bear <laughs> to be with us. But he's still alive and probably still torturing people. I don't know. Um, anyway, we... So we would run into his room. Run. You're supposed to run and do your bows. <laughs> and he asks you a question, and you're to give the answer. So the question he asked me, the first question he asked me, this was by now four in the morning, um, was, uh, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird?
I think I said something like, I beg your pardon? <laughs> Nobody in my life had ever asked me such a question before, and I had not a clue what this was about. So um, then you, he rings the bell and you, you leave immediately. You don't linger and say, could you explain what you're after here? <laughs> so that was the first of four interviews during the day had to do this four times a day, go in and be completely humiliated by not knowing the answer to this question. What is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? So the rest of the day was spent in sitting and walking, but always with the group. The posture was very particular and very strict. You could not move anything, not even the eyelid. You know, you were just in this posture and it became so difficult that I, I kind of froze. <laughs> I kind of got in the posture and I couldn't get out. I mean, I was just sort of catatonic sitting there until finally one day I had had enough and I began to weep uncontrollably, at which point they carried me out of the zendo and they suggested that perhaps I'd had enough, you know, and maybe I should go home. But I that arose my stubbornness and I said, no, no, I'm not going home. I'm fine. I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> but I wasn't fine. I really didn't know much about what the experience was, was supposed to produce, nor did I, I had, you know, I couldn't have told you anything that I learned from that, except that I have tremendous willpower under stress. So um, that was the kind of effort that was way beyond me way beyond me. So it wasn't so useful. Um, and we may find ourselves in those kinds of situations sometimes that, you know, they're interesting, but we need to come back to what kind of effort works for me, you know, and that's what I loved about this practice when I came to it, was that it trusted people to find their own effort. Nobody was pushing you. Nobody is pushing you here. We encourage you to keep showing up. But it's really up to you to find what kind of effort really works best to you. And mindfulness is your best friend with this, this, this uh, task of, of making effort. Because mindfulness, when we're really mindfulness, we, we learn from that what kind of effort is needed. If you're sitting in the hall and you begin to nod off and you're really tired, with mindfulness you'll say, oh, I need to wake up here. I need to bring in a little more energy. You need to open your eyes, breathe, take some deeper breaths. You can put your arms over your head. That will keep you awake. Just bring a little more energy. If you're doing your yogi job and you keep getting distracted, maybe in the kitchen by things that are going on, mindfulness will tell you to keep coming back, get focused, get stay with the task at hand, whether it's chopping or washing or doing any of the things you need to do. So when do we need more effort? When do we need less effort? Mindfulness will let you know. If you're paying attention, you'll begin to learn the art of harmonizing yourself with the task at hand. Lastly, I want to talk about sustaining effort. This quality of keeping going no matter what. The kind of effort a marathon runner needs. I certainly was aware of that in watching some of the Olympic uh, 
performers. It just blew me away when I contemplated the kind of effort that so many of these stellar athletes have put into perfecting their abilities. I mean, effort over a long period of time, you know, getting up early to practice or being very disciplined in your life to, to, to develop those athletic qualities. So that kind of effort is what we call sustaining effort. In practice, we learn from this kind of effort, again, to keep going no matter what, and that we are not in charge. We sometimes have the feeling in practice that we are making effort, and yet nothing seems to be happening. We're just, you know, that sometimes people come in to interviews with a, well, nothing much is going on. And I used to feel that this was, that there would always be something wrong with my practice when I would be in some kind of state like that. And then, of course, doubt sets in. Well, nothing's, nothing's happening. I'm just here, but there's no fireworks. There's nothing particularly, I can't, you know, even know what's going on. But what I have discovered over time is that this too is part of a kind of intelligence at work in our practice. And that if we stay with it, if we keep showing up, even when the results don't seem apparent, or even when we feel like we're not making progress, it's the effort to keep showing up, to keep giving our attention to something, even when the results don't seem apparent, that over time is a very powerful thing to do. Another little story. This is about a um, Chinese monk who, um, in the 70s, moved to rural Tennessee. His name was Dei Chun where he attracted a small but devoted group of students. When Daechun first came to Tennessee, there was a huge dead oak in the yard beside his cabin. One of his neighbors said, you'd better cut that thing down, or one of these days it's going to fall on your roof. Oh, thank you, said Daechun. The next time he went into town, he bought a hatchet at a thrift store. And he promptly set to work on the tree's enormous trunk, chopping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement at his minimal progress. Neighbors, seeing him working day after day like this with his little hatchet, showed up with chainsaws offering to cut it down for him. Oh, no, thank you, said Daechun. I do it my way. (laughs) This went on for months, with such regularity that if his neighbors didn't hear the steady chop, chop, chop of Daechun on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure he was all right. One day, the tree finally fell, with a crash that shook all the houses on his street. 
He later said that this was the way he had taught his students meditation. You just chop away a little every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. Faye Weldon, the writer, wrote this. She said, nothing happens, and nothing happens, and nothing happens. And then everything happens. It's the same thing. We may feel like nothing is happening, nothing is happening. We keep chopping, and one day a whole tree falls. This is a big piece of learning because it doesn't, it frustrates the ego that wants to feel it's in charge and it has its own timing and its own agenda. And, but we are entrusting ourselves to an intelligence at work which has its own timing. Our part is to keep showing up, staying present and open, and allowing the unknown to do its work, to reveal itself when the time is right. So, I think this is a lot of talking tonight, and I'm going to end a little bit early. I might be able to say some more things at a later time, but I think it's enough for now. Mostly, it's just to encourage you to reflect on effort in your practice. What is it that inspires your effort? Are you learning how to apply effort in your practice, in your lives? Are you needing to sustain your effort, even in the face of not, no apparent uh, result? So let me finish with a poem by David White. It gets back to something Wes said last night. A poem, he says, You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. This effort we are making is in the service of our aliveness, in the service of discovering this aliveness of being. So thank you all very much for your attention. Let's sit together just a moment. There's now about 40 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.